Hey, um, got a little good news for you. Uh, the good news is we're going to wrap up this little section on government tonight. Can I get a witness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I was talking to a, um, a brother, a, a man I, I respect. I, I love him as a, as a brother in Christ. And, and uh, he is wrestling with this whole idea of, you know, the, this, this, this undercurrent of anger that is this, it's going on right now. And um, he, he just made a, a, an observation that I thought was a good one. He said, um, I, I don't forget exactly how I said it, but he said, you know, back when Bill Clinton was the president, you know, we thought we had absolutely hit rock bottom with Bill Clinton. And, and he was, he was saying, um, how, how he would long for the days, uh, of Bill Clinton, uh, now. But guys, oh, and, um, uh, and, and he even alluded to this Mark 13 passage about submitting to the government. He said, you know, that was, that was really something I found distasteful when uh, Bill Clinton, but, but right now, you know, with the president administration, I, I just have a problem. I just have a problem with that. Well, I know you have a problem. I have the same problem. We all have the same problem, ladies and gentlemen. And the problem is not with the, with the administration. The problem is with the precepts that are that are that are given us in this book. What is what is stirring us? is the fact that our wills have run up against something that we find utterly distasteful. Um, a call to do something that we, left to ourselves, would not do. And, um, and in, in one sense, guys, uh, it's just another reminder of the radical ethic uh, of following Jesus Christ. And in another sense, it is a reminder that Without, apart from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, n- none of this is even given consideration. Um, that's that's not mine. I, I promise. Um, but um, guys, it, it really it's just a. I know that it 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 is um, it is a uh, a stri- it, it lands a blow at our flesh. Yes, it does. Um, and yet, what our what we have to wrestle with. Um, and and bring our wills into conformity with is not is not a government policy. It is it is the precepts and the admonitions and the mandates of this book. But we'll try to wrap those up tonight and and say something sane about them. Let me let me point you in the direction of verse five, and we'll read verses five, six, and seven, and try to cover that tonight. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same person, for the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. As you can tell, there, there are, um, there, there are some there's some key words in the passage. There are some, there are some key admonitions. First of all, this whole word of subjection. Therefore, be in subjection. Uh, it's the same word that you found in verse 1, except just in a different verbal form. Uh, the, the mandate of verse 1 is be in subject, or, or uh, be subject to. Well, it's repeated in verse 5. One must be in subjection. 
Now, you can notice this. Paul, the, the, uh, the master logician, notice how he reasons. He has already given you two reasons as to why you should be in subjection to the governing authorities. He has, in verse 2, told you that uh, if you resist what God has appointed, those who resist will incur judgment. That is, the, the first reason is the threatened punishment of God. That is, in, in, in the face of a failure to submit or sub, to be in subjection to the governing authorities, the first warning is that of the punishment of God. He then moves from there to verse 4, where he says another punishment that, we'll, that you'll have to face is a punishment by the state. Uh, be afraid, for he who does not bear the sword in vain, that whole idea that the state will also punish. But now, ladies and gentlemen, he takes his argument to an altogether new high. Um, now he says in verse... Therefore, what must be a suggestion? Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So he's given you three reasons. Um, the threatened punishment of God, the threatened punishment of the state, but now he says that the, 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 um, the motive, the higher motive to be in submission to the state is one of conscience. Which is really kind of a low blow, Paul. I mean, because now what he's done has taken, he's taken the argument completely from the outside and, and, and made it something that's an internal battle that we've got to face. It has to do with the proper operation of the Christian conscience. <laughs> now guys, um, conscience, it's a kind of an ethereal concept. We all know what they are though. Um, I, I, I tried to track down some words, the, the Greek word I could write up there for you, but, uh, you know, the board never works anyway, but, um, it, it I, I don't know that it would help you the, the Latin word might help you. Uh, our English word comes from a Latin word, which is a combination of two words, con, which is, means with, and scientia, um, which has to do with knowledge, like science, knowledge, um, conscience has, is, is is the idea of doing things with knowledge. It describes, conscience describes an inner knowing as to the right versus the wrong. An inner knowing. Now, gang, the, the New Testament um, often talks about consciences being weak. You know, that, that, that whole argument in 1 Corinthians 8 where... Do not sin against those who have weak consciences. There are consciences that are weak. There are consciences that are here that are weak. And then there are, con the, the New Testament talks about, um, th there's a good conscience. I, I serve God out of a clear conscience. Several passages, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 1, um, Acts 23, all talk about having a clear conscience, a clean conscience. Okay, what makes the difference, ladies and gentlemen? What makes one, how does one go from a weak conscience or an undeveloped conscience to a strong conscience? How does one address the whole idea of conscience? Well, that's why I think the Latin word will help us. Conscience is doing things with knowledge. He, Paul is appealing to conscience, a conscience that is trained by a particular brand of knowledge. Now, obviously, 
where is that training going to come from? Where is that knowledge going to come from? Where's the input, the information going to be given to us that will take the conscience that is weak and turn it into something that is strong? Or a conscience that is violated to a conscience that is clean? What what knowledge is going to take you there, ladies and gentlemen? The, the commercial appeal? Um, uh, country and Western music? What is going to equip the conscience to operate so that such that when it does, it operates according to knowledge? Well, obviously, I think the answer is the Bible. That is, the knowledge that enables the conscience to operate properly is a, is a full grasp of the knowledge offered you and the things that are told you, um, in here. Can I just give you an example, guys? For us to be in subjection to the government is a hard thing. But Paul has now appealed to our conscience. A conscience that we hope has been trained with knowledge. What things do we know? What things do we know that will help us in performing a responsibility that we find utterly distasteful? What things do we know? Well, uh, do we know this? That the uh, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whithersoever he wills? Do we know that? Do we know that the governments that are in power are governments that have been put in power or allowed to be in power by God? Do we know those things? Do we know that the God who has found a way to save us is also the God that has permitted the present administration into power? Do we know those things? Okay, operating on biblical input, then we obey as we appeal to a conscience that's been trained by things that we know. Guys, my belief system is, when I become a Christian, my belief system is supposed to be remade into this image. You know, you, you've heard me say this on numerous occasions, but I mean, I don't, I don't intend for this to be offensive. It, I, don't, I don't really think it is offensive, but it makes the point. What you think about homosexuality is of no interest to me. It's of no interest to me. And and by the way, what I think of the issue should be of no interest to you. What we've both got to be interested in is, what does this book say about that subject as well as all other subjects? So my conscience has to be retaught. There's a sense in which when I become a Christian, I've got to unlearn what the world taught me, and I've got to bring my conscience into conformity with this, and then let it guide me. That instructed, trained, biblically directed conscience has now got to be the thing that moves me through the maze of the kind of choices and the kind of complexities that I face. It's that thing. You know, um, I, I, I said this, but the, if you've ever in my, my, my systematics class, um, 
you, you know, there's an Arminian theology and then there's a Reformed theology, and I teach Reformed theology, and I'm, Refor- I'm a Reformed thinker. But one of the things that Reformers love to say, we love to say this, that we think God's thoughts after him. That is, the, the, the challenge to us as individual believers is to think God's thoughts after him. That's how the conscience gets trained, folks. By thinking God's thoughts after him. You don't get a conscience that is clear by doing whatever you think, whatever you see fit. You get a conscience that is clear when the conscience is trained by these thoughts of God's and my behavior matching that. That's when my conscience is clean and good and clear and maturing. You know, um, one of the things that I find, I find, I mean, I think you know the text. It's in, um, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and I think it's verse 5, where Paul says he takes captive every thought into the obedience of Christ. Do you remember that text? I mean, that's kind of a, taking captive. Think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Think about the imagery that the Apostle Paul is using right there. What is he saying about thoughts? He says, I am taking captive every thought. What is he telling you about thoughts? He's telling you that they are hostile things. They have a mind of their own. That they're out there trying to do what they want to do. And so I have to kind of get that thought and and bring it captive. I have to make, because thoughts are hostile. They're, they're, they're in, they're often in opposition, particularly the longer that you were a non-Christian, the longer that you learn how to think wrongly, or the longer we learn how to think wrongly, the more, the, 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 the I've got to learn how to think again, and to rethink, and to unthink, because my conscience has got to be trained. I've got to take God's thoughts and think them after Him. I've got to take those thoughts that are hostile to Him, and I've got to bring them captive. I've got to make thoughts captive. I've got to make thoughts serve me. I don't serve them. I've got to make them serve me. And the ones that are out of conformity with, with this revealed will of God, they've got to go. They've got to go. And so, uh, this is certainly an aside, but that's the one reason that Bible study is so important, personally and corporately, or privately and corporately. Because what am I trying to do? I'm trying to retrain, rewire, reinform, remake a bad conscience into a good conscience. And it is to that God-trained conscience that Paul appeals in verse 5. When when that conscience is properly informed, then, um, then it would tell me to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Guys, let me say it like this. 
Christians have a higher motive to obey than fear. I don't want to disobey because I don't want to get a speeding ticket. Our motive is not that we don't want the speeding ticket. We have higher motives than that. Our motives must be higher than, than the motives of... They might, they might um, obey out of one motive. We obey out of a conscience that's been trained and governed and is presently governed by the Holy Spirit. We know that subjection to the government is right because we know the God who establishes governments. Where'd you learn that? Well, I learned it from here. My conscience has been trained by this. Um, as Christians, guys, we are to have an enlightened moral conscience. And so all moral issues, not just this one, but all moral issues are to be viewed through the lens of what God has said is appropriate or fitting or true. And, and, and if you've got a thought that's otherwise, you know, I, I've said it like this before, uh, and I guess this, but guys, I, I, I don't care whether the God of the Muslim loves me. I don't care whether the God of the Buddhist loves me. I don't care whether the God of the Hindu loves me. Because very frankly, those gods don't exist. What I am concerned about is whether this God loves me. So, when it comes to moral issues, I don't care what, 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 what Washington says. Our views of these things, as much as they might bite into our flesh, pinch our flesh, I take my conscience, I corral those unruly thoughts, and I bring them into conformity with what's here. And Paul appeals to that biblically, biblically trained conscience as the highest motive for our obedience to, the, to a government. We obey even when there is no prospect of punishment. Uh, guys, um, when and if, when and if you as a Christian, or when and if, we as Christians are considering disobedience, civil disobedience uh, to government. Just know this. I, this is not a very good statement, but this is about all I can say. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. When we make a decision to, um, to oppose the government, it's a huge deal. Disobedience is never to be taken lightly. The same conscience that is supposed to lead me to submit to the government is a conscience that may demand that I disobey that government. Yes, but it's a huge deal. Conscience obliges us to obedience, but that same conscience sets limits to that obedience. Both ends of that spectrum governed and defined by God's word. But always our conscience is to be informed by what the scriptures have to say, not, um, not, not what uh, we're being told elsewhere. Uh, so th that's what he does in verse 5. He appeals to this whole thing of conscience. Verse 6, for the same reason you also pay taxes, 
for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Before I get into this whole tax taxation thing, guys, when I when I prepared this Bible study, I read four or five commentaries, and one of them is a is a commentary by Robert Haldane. Robert Haldane, uh, in my world, is very very much esteemed, uh, very highly esteemed. Um, and his volume on Romans is very reliable, very good, and uh, enjoyable. But it, the reason I allude to it is this. Haldane's commentary, and I, I don't have the exact year because I really couldn't find it in my copy. It's just been a reprint of a reprint of a reprint of a reprint. But I couldn't find the original date that Haldane wrote his commentary on um, on Romans. But it was somewhere in the early 1800s, like 1805, 1807, something like that. Robert Haldane wrote his commentary in Romans and let's say 1807. That's not exact. I'm just kind of guessing, but it's close. In that commentary written in 1807, he is addressing the issue about the government misusing a portion of our taxation monies. You know, we've talked about this in here before. Well, I don't feel like I should pay taxes because um, because they use some of that money to, to, to abort babies. I don't like the way my tax dollars are used. And so, and I told you about Dan um, um, Dan Morris, who fought the government based on that uh, that posture, and um, of course he lost. <coughs> but the, the important, the, the interesting thing to me is that in 1807, the church was fighting the same thing, the same issue. And and one of the things that Haldane says is, and and I, and I want to show you this. The text defines taxes as a debt. Um, verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Pay to all what is owed to them. This work, oh, taxes to whom taxes are owed. You see that word? It's the same word that's found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 32, I think, something. Yes, 1832, that is translated debt. But the whole concept is that of a debt. Taxes are a debt. We wouldn't dream of um, of failing to pay other debts that we owed. The New Testament tells you that taxes are a debt. Now back to Haldane. He's saying, we pay taxes because there are debts. And because once we pay our taxes, because we then no longer control how they are spent, we are not culpable for the way that they are spent. I am not guilty if my government goes and takes some of my tax dollars and spends them on things that are immoral. I am not held accountable for that. What I am held accountable for, did I pay my debts? So I pay my debts. Now, but let me underscore, go back to the thing that, that really tweaked my interest is, in 1807, they're fighting that issue. Same issue that we're talking about today. Different little nuances and specifics, perhaps. Same issue. Uh, Christians concerned about how their tax dollars are spent. This text, guys, verse 6 and 7. Um, well, 
we're told, no getting around it, that we are to pay our tax. Oh, but our taxes are way too high, way too high. That, that may be true. It's interesting that we don't, we don't complain about when the taxes are spent on parks and better roads and, and in military defense, but we do complain about the government spending the money wrongly. Guys, I'm not responsible for that. Once my debt is paid, then, then those who spend it wrongly on things like abortion, which we consider to be murder, they're responsible for that. But that's an issue that's been around a lot longer than you and I have been. Guys, no one likes to pay taxes, but we are, we, we are resigned to their inevitability. And Paul says, that's a bad attitude. We don't just pay them because, you know, just taxes and debt, they're both inevitable. No, ladies and gentlemen, we pay them according to verse 6. For the, uh, for the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. Guys, that's the third time that they have used that word. Actually, that's not true. That's the third time that the government has been called ministers. This is a different word than the previous two times. I told you the previous two times is the word diakonos, from which we get our word deacon. The government is the deacon of God. This word is a different word. It comes from the word lutrio, which means to worship or serve. Read it. Um, because the, the, for the authorities are the ones who are servants or are putting in service to God. Guys, we don't pay because they're inevitable. We pay because this government, as hard as it is for me to say this, <laughs> is serving God's purposes. Whatever those are right now, I, I find them hard to define. But that's what that text teaches us, guys. Um, Paul is not concerned about how governments spend money. His concern is about how Christians pay taxes. At least in this text. He addresses this not about, listen here now, you know, there are some, uh, there are some limits about how you should tax. Yes, there are, and there's some limits about how, um, uh, governments, um, don't go, I mean, go too far in taxation. Yes, there's a text in Luke chapter three. But that's not what he's concerned about here. What he's concerned about is not the government and their taxation policies. He's, he's concerned about Christians. Paying those taxes, which he defines as debts. Um, and he uses a word in verse 7, which is a um, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to, to, to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. Honor. Honor. Really? Really? Honor? To whom honor is owed? Really? You know, it's interesting, guys. Uh, what I did is try to track down the things um, that we're supposed to honor. Um, one of the things we're supposed to honor is um, God. Okay? That's, that's in the New Testament. Another thing you're supposed to honor is government. That's in the... But there are two other things that you were supposed to honor that I found. Uh, number one, you're supposed to honor elders, church elders. 
Hebrews chapter 13. Um, what else are we supposed to honor? <laughs> Parents. Guys, in all three of the institutions that the Bible says were created by God, the state, the church, and the family, all three of those institutions that he had something to do with, honor is requisite. Now, guys, honor is not something um, that is based on agreement. It's simply based on office. I guarantee you, as a child... You didn't disagree, you didn't agree with everything mom and daddy said, but you were called to honor those parents. In the church, you may not agree with everything the elders decide, but you are called to honor. It, the same thing is true here. I don't, I don't agree with everything that this government does, but because of the office of parent, of elder, of God, and of state. Honor. Honor is one of the requirements. It's hard to do. I, I, um, I'm the first to confess. And yet that is what, that is the radicalness of the, of the ethic, of the Christian ethic, guys. Um, Guys, just a couple of things and I'll quit, but I, I pointed this out a moment ago, but I, I want to do it in the sequence of the text. Verse 7 points out or calls or defines taxes as debts, not as options, not as if you get ready and you want to. They're debts, debts that we owe as as a part of a citizenry. And the, the people who ought to be the best at paying their taxes is us. As um, much as we might hate to write those checks, etc. Uh, it is, I mean, really, verse 7 is just a, is our, is a restatement of something that Jesus said when he was around. Now, guys, uh, I want to close by reading you a quote. Um, and if you've not, this is an old, this came out in like 1986, Against the Night um, you know, uh, I said something a couple of weeks ago that I regretted saying, you know, I do that all the time, but, uh, um, I say things from time to time, which I think I, I, I wish I could have back. Uh, I said, what I said was 30 years from now, you're not going to want to be living here, you know, and, and, and I regret that statement because that's, it's, um, it, it's oh so negative, oh so ghastly and, um, and who knows what God may choose to do. I mean, he may... But my, my, my point is this. This is written in 1986. And you should read some of the comments that are made in here about um, the darkness and the blackness of the day. Um, it's just... This is written by Chuck Colson. Um, uh, against the night, he's talking about the, the political darkness that exists in Washington. That's what this book is about. It's, I mean, if you, you can borrow my copy, well, I don't know if you can or not, because you might lose it, but, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's all the same stuff. You know, um, it, here's, here's chapter 13 on moral education, talking about public schools and how public schools are just, that was in 1986, ladies and gentlemen, that was 25 years ago. And he's talking about how it's shot, and, so what do you think about yours? Don't you think, but I mean, they were saying that 25 years ago, is my point. But anyway, um, just to leave you with something that I think is a tad hopeful, 
This is a quote from Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> uh, you know, she's really well-esteemed as a politician. And did you know that she was a Christian? At least this sure sounds like she is. And she was addressing the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Now, the Church of Scotland uh, uh, historically was very, very sound and solid. It's It's gone the way of every other denomination in, in the world, but... Um, but she is, she is speaking to a bunch of preachers. And this is brief, but it's, it's profound, I thought. The truths of the Judaic Christian tradition are infinitely precious, not only, as I believe, because they are true, but also because they provide the moral impulse which alone can lead to that peace for which we all long. Do you get that? There is little hope for democracy if the hearts of men and women in democratic societies cannot be touched by a call to something greater than themselves. Political structures, state institutions, collective ideals are not enough we parliamentarians can legislate for the rule of law. You, the church, can teach the life of faith. I mean, do you get what she's saying? And guys, this is what I've been saying to you because I, it, it concerns me that we conservative Christians have begun, become so red. Republican. And we, somehow we've gotten the notion that our solution is going to be found if we can just throw the bums out. And I have said it just about every one of these on these first seven verses. Folks, a new administration is not the key to hope. The church who has within her possession... The very mind of God is black words on a white page. And yet what we've done is that we've taken the American dream and we've Christianized it. And that's what we call Christianity. It's a far cry from Christianity, ladies and gentlemen. Just a conservative, you know, against the homosexuals, against the liberals, and we don't like them, 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 them. Guys, that's where I see the church drifting, and that is a mistake. The hope is not in a new political party, even the Tea Parties. The hope is in the church of Jesus Christ, opening her mouth and speaking truth, declaring it boldly and doing it over and over and then going out and living some of this stuff that we say we believe. And that's, I think, what Margaret Hatcher was saying. And that's what I think ought to be the grand hope of individual believers, that God the Holy Spirit will give us not boldness, but he'll just unlock our jaws. I've said this before. It's rather, it's rather, rather theatric. But you know me. Um, 
you know, we sing a song. We ought to go back and you ought to go back and read this song. I, I mean, I, I could probably sing you one of the verses. I won't. But um, the part of it that I'm going to that, that I will quote, you know, it's one we've sung a lot, or at least used to. And the title of the song is "Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise." I'm telling you, the Church of Jesus Christ has lost the one tongue that she does have. Much less the other 999 that we don't have. That, when the church finds that tongue, then there is there's reason to be encouraged. That's great. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind us that uh, who we are and who we belong to. That um, we are being... We are trying to be students of a book because you have made us sons and daughters of the living God that, that all of this makes no sense for the unbeliever. But we are not the unbeliever. We've been made new by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And from that newness we draw. And we pray that you will allow us and enable us by the power and the might of the Holy Spirit to do what is right in the face of such distasteful choices. And I pray that the that a culture that is angry right now might not might its anger not be added to by ours. Might we give them the blessed hope that that ever exists repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Might Gracie Van fix her attention, not on what the government is doing, but on what we are doing as individual expressions of the grace of Almighty God. Might you be pleased by how we express that. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night.